A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Urban warfare has been described as the toughest environment you could ask a military to fight in. An environment where defenders have the advantage and attackers bear the brunt of the ambushes, the roadblocks, and the snipers, all of which go hand in hand when forces collide on urban terrain. But what is the history of urban warfare, and what can it tell us about the current situation in Ukraine as Russia launches major attacks on cities like Kiev? I'm your host, James Rogers, and here on the Warfare Podcast, we're joined by John Spencer. John is Professor in Urban Warfare at West Point and a 25-year veteran of the US Army. He is the expert on both the history and practice of urban warfare, and he provides us with a unique insight into the character of the war in Ukraine and what we can expect next. Hi, John. Thanks so much for coming on the Warfare Podcast at this busy, you could even say chaotic time. Hey, thanks a lot. I would definitely say chaotic. Chaotic to say the least. But it is great to have you here to provide just a little context and some explanation, potentially some history about this term that we're hearing almost every day since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And this is urban warfare. Now, you are the chair of urban warfare studies at the Modern War Institute at West Point in the United States. And so I think you are the ideal person, the expert to take us through this. Perhaps you could take us back a little bit in history, help us to define, explain what urban warfare actually is. Yeah. So I'm no historian and my historian friend Jacob Stoyle says I murder it all the time. But as long as I say that up front, it's like a caveat. So Urban warfare, by definition, is what it sounds like fighting in cities, period. Now, that goes back to the beginning of warfare. Literally, you can trace it back thousands of years. You think about like the Battle of Jerusalem. I was just in Israel last summer where David takes the city of Jerusalem by force, takes it over. The history of urban warfare goes all the way back. Now, good friends of mine say there's been a long history of fighting for cities, not as much fighting in cities. So historically, if you go back, you think think about it. Think about Egypt. Think about the Middle Ages, the castles, walled cities. That's what people did in warring times to protect themselves. They brought themselves inside the city walls, defended. It, it took massive armies to prevent that. And it, siege warfare led warfare through the, you're talking 16th century, 17th century. Again, let me murder some historical facts, especially 
sieges, you know, this era when warfare really turned into sieges. You talk about Napoleon times, you talk about all the greats. This all started to change, though, that, that aspect of fighting for castles, walled cities, things like that, really when black powder and gunpowder hit the stage, right? Because then you could no longer have to take a massive walled city and surround it and then use what siege warfare tactics to break in, right? The forlorn hope of you break into a city wall, dig under them, all that stuff. I can stand back now and launch artillery at you and destroy your walls and make you pay. Uh, so then there's an evolution, right? So then you enter World War One. not that much fighting. You, you get the Battle of Verdun, which is bombing cities and things like that. You see trench warfare and trench warfare kind of went away once other technologies hit the battlefield. You hit World War II, you do see a lot of urban fighting in World War II, and there's lots of reasons for that. But even the, the greatest urban battle of history, Stalingrad, right? A million man person against another million man army who just happened to collide over the city for illogical reasons. Most of the fighting of Stalingrad happened outside the cities, even though it is the greatest example of intense urban warfare. And there are other battles in World War II. Is cities become strategic objectives. They can end wars because cities are always important. They're the, the economic engines, the political capitals. They often are the sit on strategic terrain, like the access to other areas. Or sometimes if you just threaten a city because you want to save your people, it becomes important in warfare. So you, you know, fast forward to the modern age. Most armies are smaller in the world, even the greatest armies, they're much smaller to include Russia's army today. My good friend, Tony King has a book out where he argues very well, 21st century urban warfare. There's no choice but to fight in urban areas. Now your armies are too small. You can't form a just large front across, you know, the folded gap or across Eastern Europe. You just don't have the, nobody has the army that size. The battlefield today is, is more lethal than it's ever been in history, right? I can hit you from hundreds of miles away. You stand in the open today, you're dead. It doesn't matter what you have. And we're seeing that. So the urban environments allow people to level the playing field in some aspects. But even the second battle, so I went over to Nagorno-Karabakh because that was a very interesting battle, a war where modern technologies are, are, were seen to be the most dominant thing, like the, the TB2 drone, the suicide drones, things like that. The only thing that mattered was one battle for one city. And once that city fell, the Battle of Susha, the war was over. You see, this is really interesting to me, John. As an air power scholar and a scholar on drones, our listeners hear me, uh, you know, excuse the pun, droning on all of the time about these issues. But could we say that as you take us through this history from the First World War, of course, the, the American reaction to this was to develop air power and to go over and not through the enemy. It was to target those cities and to degrade the enemy's war-making capacity. You say that nowadays, when we are in the open, when an enemy is in the open, there is a, a guaranteed, I suppose, precision destruction. You're not going to last long there. And you could see that in Nagorno-Karabakh, when you had the annihilation of the Armenian tanks. So is this movement towards an increase in urban warfare in the 21st century, the move towards having to fight into cities, is this in direct relation to the proliferation of air power? specifically precision air power, very effective air power, including missiles and mortars and drones to an array of hostile actors that are out there? Yeah, that's, so that's a big question, right? So we teach this in West Point in all Army you know, big schools, strategy, strategic studies, the evolution of air power. I personally 
not just because I'm an army guy and I'm a land guy. You always have to start, what's the objective, right? So what is the objective of the war? Whether you're a Clausewitz fan or a Jomini fan, is your objective to destroy the enemy's military? And that allows you to achieve your political objective. There are naysayers to say, this isn't about terrain. This is about destroying the enemy in his will, right? So that's what we always say. This is war is the contest of wills. And if you can impose your will on the enemy, you will win. Yes, yes, and is what I say. And this is also about your ability to take what they value, their land and their populations. It all goes to what the objective is of who's fighting. Your objective could just be to save your nation. It could still be terrain-based, city-based. And I think that's what we're seeing in Ukraine. There seemed to be no hope in this war for this small little army to resist the great bear. But again, because of the lethality of battlefield, right? Some of these systems, whether they're air power or surface to air or ground systems, a javelin is like the most lethal thing ever created. One, because it's mobile. You don't need a big team, a big glaring target that we were seeing getting destroyed. Like you want to bring in a rocket, like a toss one multi-launch rocket system. It can be seen and it can be targeted. Uh, some of these other modern battlefield systems, again, drives you into the urban terrain. Yes, I think, so to answer your question, yes, this is an evolution of the increased lethality of air power. I think air power is supporting to the strategic objective. What is your objective? Personally, this, you can quote me on this, you don't win anything by bombing. You win by joint force. Your ability to move into somebody's terrain and take it from them or to keep them from taking it. So is this more about asymmetric warfare? That idea that potentially you need to move into urban areas to have any chance against more advanced modern militaries. I suppose what I'm asking you, John, is is urban warfare the strategy of the weak? Because if I think back to even recent events and Operation Inherent Resolve and the siege of Mosul, this is what ISIS attempted to do was to occupy these cities in order to be that persistent thorn in the side of Western militaries and to some relative success for quite a long time. So is urban warfare the strategy of the week? Aha, good question. The answer is no. So I think the question you're asking is the defense, the strategy of the week. So Clausewitz, you're the guy that everybody likes to quote, but not everybody reads, says that defense is the strongest form of war. By that, he means logically it's the strongest. It is not the most, you know, all war is politics. It is not the most politically strong strategy, but anytime you can stand still and let somebody run into you, it's going to be stronger. Now, is the urban warfare the strategy of the week? I don't think so. I don't think history shows that, right? Take any U.S. battle of the last 20, 30 years, take, you know, the, the taking of the Taliban in Afghanistan, two weeks of all urban fighting. It was all about taking their urban centers. If Kiev falls, it all falls. So if it's the strategy of the week, then why would that be the objective? And why isn't the only objective in war the destruction of the other person's military power, military force, whatever? I do agree with you in the asymmetry of this. But like I said, even if this was about, although I don't know if it exists anymore in the battlefield, conventional war, right? Two conventional armies fighting each other. What if you know NATO goes to war against Russia and China? Whatever scenario of conventional warfare based on the modern realities of the military power in the world, it will be urban. I think that makes perfect sense, especially with the major mega cities that are out there and what you need to achieve in order to ensure your strategic advantage and your overall victory. 
the Ides of March, the 15th of March, it's perhaps the most famous, or shall we say infamous day in the ancient history world because it was on that day in 44 BC that Julius Caesar, dictator of Rome, was assassinated in a Senate meeting. But what do we know about the events of the Ides of March 44 BC? Did Shakespeare get anything right? And what happened next? Well, every Sunday this March on the Ancients from History Hit, we're going to find out. This is the time for our special mini-series of episodes all about the Ides of March, the events of the day itself, the legacy of this day in ancient history, some of the characters involved, and so much more. So make sure you tune into the Ancients from History Hit every Sunday for our special Ides of March mini-series. 
some people are saying uh, the shock and all that the American coalition did in Iraq, and, and it failed for them. They tried a light approach, little air campaign, actually. Um, they targeted you know the air defense systems and things like that. Um, so the Ukrainians were on the receiving end of that and the receiving end of pushing out and not letting very rapidly moved around forces like the, I mean, they dropped 200 paratroopers in an airfield. That was all an attempt to rapidly seize key terrain in Ukraine that would then facilitate follow-on forces to hold urban terrain. I think we're out of that phase. They've only pushed half of the Russian military in and more is coming every day. I think now you're going to see a greater military force come in and encircle cities that are either in the way of getting to Kiev or encircle Kiev itself, find a penetration point. They'll pick a penetration point and then they'll push the heaviest mechanized armored force with infantry support. You know, what we know works in urban warfare in through a penetration point that usually was supported by heavy amounts of aerial bombarding rockets ground-based artillery systems, things like that to support that penetration. But that's, so, so far they've faced this light, feeling it out, reconnaissance, trying to get in. Now I think the more conventional, more organized, larger forces coming. So might we see a siege of Kiev over the next few weeks or indeed days? Or will we see the Russian military make a spearhead push to the center? So that's a great question. If you look at the wars of the last 20 years or so, Many of those have evolved to siege warfare. If you think about, you know, Raqqa, Aleppo, even what happened in eastern Ukraine and in the Donbass and the Donetsk airport, things like that. So this is you know, for your history, people. You know, siege warfare has a history, but it has meaning to me. I think siege warfare is when your goal is to siege, and, and whether that's to wait out the enemy which is, it goes back historically, right? So you can surround them and wait them out. Their supplies will diminish eventually and then maybe they'll just capitulate. And, you, and that's, to me, that's when you put siege warfare in is you, your strategy is to cut them off and wait them out. I think that this will evolve into, it may evolve into a short, I don't like using the word siege, to be honest, James. I like isolation. Even if you think about what we did in the Battle of Mosul, right? So they had two years to prepare a defense, two years. And they did. It was an impressive by an irregular, untrained, probably you know, advised force of like 5,000, took two years and built impressive defensive belts, stockpiled vehicle bombs and IEDs. And it basically went into a phase where we had to isolate it, surround it. But the isolation was always with the goal of liberating it. And by liberating by force, as in setting the conditions to penetrate and then start clearing. I think that's what we'll see potentially, but the Russians don't have the time, in my opinion, to do that. Every day we see somebody joining the Ukrainian people in, in opposition to what's happening. And that's amazing that they've done that. If they would have lost within the first 48, 72 hours, they had no hope. Now I think they have hope. So let Russia try to siege Kiev. They don't have the logistical support to support their own people, which is actually historical too. Uh, you know, there's some been some great battles in history where one army has seized a town or a city and they've themselves run out of supplies or somebody else came up behind them and just smashed them against the walls of the place they're trying to siege. I personally think that they don't have the time to siege. Pretty soon, as we've seen these protests in Russia, the world coming in to support, you know, Germany providing those critical modern javelin stingers. Russia doesn't have the time to siege Kiev. 
So this is where we come to the very serious matter of current events. And you've been using the medium of social media to provide some tactical advice to Ukrainians on the ground. Could you give us a flavor of what your advice consists of? Yeah, absolutely. So you probably saw one of my original tweets was, I don't like seeing civilians in war in general. You know, ideally, and historically, it has happened a couple of times where you surround a city and say, I'm coming. Anybody who's not an enemy, get out. Think about the second battle of Fallujah in 2004. It took a couple of months and we, the U.S. coalition and uh, emptied that city of about 90%. Same thing in the Battle of Mawari 2017. I don't like it, but they're fighting for their survival. And, and, it, and it was an amazing force multiplier to activate their reserves and now say every Ukrainian who's willing and able resist. So I put out some advice saying, hey, I've heard that you know there's been very limited instructions on how to help, how to defend, how to resist, other than you know build a model, talk, 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 and go out and resist. But there are incredible advantages to the urban terrain now that this is like predictable, centering on urban fighting, centering on preventing the Russians from getting to Kiev, preventing them from taking Kiev. So I, I put out a couple of tweets, images of things that anybody can do. It doesn't matter who you are. And the number one is just to build barriers. Every major battle in history, urban, especially you think about the Battle of Berlin, the Battle of Seoul. Sometimes like the Battle of Seoul, the, the barrier plan was the plan. Build these massive barriers that stop the enemy. Because again, you know, any modern military, especially today's, is a combined arms maneuver force. What do you have to do in order to do maneuver? You need to be able to move. So if anybody and everybody in a city like Kiev, of 4 million people, lots of have fleed and, and that's great, can help build barriers. They can block every road, every street, and it'll buy them time. It will slow down a military that can then be targeted, right? Depending on what the obstacle is, you could build such a good obstacle that they got to get out of their vehicles, their protected vehicles, and to try to reduce it, as we say, if they're not good at combined arms breach, which they're not, and then they're vulnerable. So I gave out that. My number one advice was like, well, yeah, build Molotov cocktails, but go out and start blocking stuff. You know from history how important bridges are, right? Most modern military equipment is so heavy that it can only go over certain bridges. So bridges always become, and this, there's this whole thing called wet gap crossings about bringing your own bridge. But bridges are become strategic in war campaigns. So there's lots of bridges heading into Kiev because there's a waterway that splits it. I would block and that's what I put out, right? So they, they, they can block bridges if they're not going to destroy them, which is the number one course of action. But if you're a civilian, go drive a dump truck in front of that. And then trust me from experience, that will stop an armor force. So I said, I talked about barriers in my advice. I also talked about resisting smartly. Like we were talking about, if you stand in the open, that's an easy target for me. If you're on top of a building looking down, that's another easy target for me. If you're going to resist be smart about it. Get inside of a building. That, that's the advantage of urban terrain. Pick where you're going to shoot from, where you're going to attack from, and, and do that. I talked about building an S shape, which seems, which is crazy about these tweets is that they went viral because you, we, we live in this military community and sometimes you, you think this stuff is common sense. But one thing you can do, right? You can't, what it, let's say if you couldn't block every street, you can build a, a checkpoint. We call it in a serpentine, an S shape. Because you and I have seen the videos of what's happened in Ukraine, and they tried this. They, they wanted to use speed. If they can drive through an urban area, and it, oh, by the way, the mud's really preventing them from maneuvering around, so they're forced to the roads. If you can slow them down, then you can, somebody else, even if you're not the one with the weapon, can shoot at them. But if you let them just drive by at 30 miles per hour, 
their chances miss. I talked about sniping. So anybody who's ever been in the military for a while knows snipers are like your worst nightmare. In an urban terrain, and we faced this in Baghdad, I've faced it multiple times. It really puts fear, it will demoralize military forces if there's a sniper. And of course, any military person will like, yeah, they don't have snipers. And I don't mean like American sniper, Kyle, you know, I don't mean that kind of sniper. I mean, anybody who's shooting from a hidden position from a little bit of a distance. So you don't have to be a sniper to be to do urban sniping. I talked about you know, protecting yourself. I talked, to, you know, there's so much that could be done to create, I call it a porcupine. There's other terms across history, but make it so hard to move, let alone fight, that it buys you time. It allows the Ukrainian military and other forces to strike and defeat them in detail. Urban defense is all about breaking apart the military, right? Think about the 300. Why is 300 so historic is that they picked a piece of terrain that it doesn't matter how big the army's coming, they have to go through this little passage. You can apply that principle to any city, and especially a major city like Kiev, that it's huge. You can force them to where you want to go, and where it doesn't matter how big they are, they're going to have to file in one vehicle at a time, and you can hold. It reminds me of the funneling down of the Siegfried line and the effectiveness of that in places like the Hurtgen Forest. Thank you so much for taking us through this history and some of those concepts which themselves have deeply rooted historical examples among them. Please tell us, where can people follow you online and where can people read more about urban warfare? So yeah, thanks a lot. So I'm on Twitter at Spencer Guard. Um, we also have a website, the mwi.usama.edu, where the Urban Warfare Project is. And I have a my own nothing like this amateur podcast that I've been doing for a couple of years that comes out every two weeks. You can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, anywhere, the Urban Warfare Project podcast. It is not amateur. It is excellent. Thank you so much for your time, John. Thanks, James. Thanks for tuning in. Remember to subscribe so you can access our original cutting-edge military histories each week, twice a week, every week. And if you think there's a history we need to cover, or you want to share your own family histories, then email us directly on warfare at historyhit.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, 
plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.